This morning's text comes from Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued, or yeah, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Please join with me as we, as we pray God's blessing over the teaching of his word. Father, we long to encounter you. We long to encounter your truth, to let it change us. I pray that uh, as Tommy preaches, that we would truly take heart, that the transmission of your truth would take place, take root in our lives. Thank you for your church. We love to be called your people, to associate ourselves with you, to know your spirit. Amen. What do you want? As I, as I said that, I realized that's a pretty aggressive question. Like, what do you want? What are you doing here, people? I want you to think about that question, though, for a minute. What do you want? When I ask that question in a generic way, like I did, it's really probably informative for you to, to think about, what did you think about immediately when I asked the question? What do you want? 
As you think about your life, what is it that you want? Um, where did your mind go immediately when you were asked that question? Did you think, I want a million dollars? Did you think, I want to find a husband? Uh, did you think, I want peace of mind? The answer to that question gets to, I think, the heart of a person's mindset, uh, a person's motivation. I think it gets to the heart of our priorities pretty quickly when you ask the question, what do I want? That's why I brought it up. I, I've come to realize, what do you want is a powerfully clarifying question. Think about if you apply it less generically than me just asking what do you want in a general sense. If I asked you this question, I said, what do you want out of a job? You might sit back and you might begin to think, I, I want more money. I, I want to get paid more. Or, or I want more flexibility in my life. Or I want coworkers that I get along with that I enjoy being around. And as you answer the question in those various ways, it begins to clarify for you what job you would pursue or what job, what job you may try to get. Or, or maybe it begins to make you realize that the job you currently have isn't really what you want out of this life. Or maybe if you asked it a, a more personal question. What do you want out of your marriage? If the response is something like, what I want most out of my marriage is to be happy, it clarifies pretty quickly the self-motivation you have in your relationship. Well, he's not making me happy right now, or she's not making me happy right now. And what it does is it shows you really quickly that the reason I'm in this thing is for me. And it probably would explain to you why you're struggling in your marriage, right? What do you want clarifies so often exactly the desires of our heart, exactly the priorities of our minds, exactly what we want out of our lives. What do you want? I find that question particularly helpful as I process uh, the story we read this morning out of Acts chapter 8. In our series, um, Unstoppable, which is a study, which has been a study in the book of Acts, we've been, we've been looking at the, the attributes, the, the attitudes, the actions that the first century church engaged in, who they were, what they did to become this, this unstoppable church, this, this church that literally changed the face of the world for all times. From that day to this day, the world is different because of that church. And so we've been looking at it and saying, what is it about that church that, that created that unstoppable force that it was? And so as we've looked at it, it, it it's, it's challenged us in so many different ways. From the very beginning where, where it describes that church as being unified, of one accord, it says, fully devoted to each other and to the singular uh, purpose of the glory of God. They had one identity, and it was to follow Jesus Christ. Or maybe it was when, maybe it, was when it talked about how, how obstinately and constantly devoted to prayer they were. Each one of us reflects on our own lives and says, how do I pray? How well do I do in my prayer? How do we do as the church in prayer? Or maybe it was their complete and total devotion to bringing forth the message of Jesus Christ, where they said, there is no other hope, there is no other name under heaven, but the name of Jesus Christ by which men may be saved. And so we've got to preach, no matter what they said, we've got to share it, no matter what they do. 
They can arrest us. They can beat us. They can even kill us. And it's not going to stop because the power of the Holy Spirit came on that church and they went forth in a powerful way. Each time as we've looked at this church, there's this, there's this deep challenge to each one of us to say, do we emulate that? Do we have that same heart? We've been called to emulate the heart and the devotion of the early church. And this morning's text provides us again, I think, the opportunity to understand the power of a church that is devoted to these attributes, that are devoted to these attitudes and these actions. And I also think it provides a challenge to each one of us to look at how we respond. Do we respond rightly to the work of the Holy Spirit, to the power of God manifested in the church? Because that's the challenge, not just for that first century, but it's a challenge for us today. How do we respond to God? How do we respond to the work of God? How do we respond to the power of God manifested in a real way? The story itself, it really is quite amazing. Um, when you really take time to look at it, and so often we kind, of, we kind of read over these stories and we don't really kind of step into what's taking place. This story in particular is, is pretty incredible. Um, if you take the time to look at it, you see this, this unstoppable, powerful church being displayed here, right? This, this church in which, in which the Holy Spirit is just showing up and moving in incredible ways. It ultimately starts, it ultimately starts with the persecution of the church, actually. The story starts with the persecution of the church. It begins in the, in the place in which Stephen is martyred, Right? All the way back in chapter 7, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Here is Stephen, this, this, this man that was full of grace, this man that was full of the Holy Spirit, this man that was, that was full of wisdom. He stands up and he begins to preach. And the opposition rises up. And so they, they take him and they pull him outside the city. And they take big rocks and they, they kill him in front of everyone. And so what happens is the church understands that this persecution is coming and they begin to persecute the church in, in an incredible way. And, they, and the church begins to scatter. They begin to race away from, from the persecution, looking for opportunities to, 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 to have the freedom to be Christ followers, to, to share in who Christ is. And it's amazing how God even used the persecution of the church for his glory, right? So they, they come in and they're like, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop what's going on here. And so, so we're going to persecute the church and we're going to, we're going to arrest people. And we're, going to, we're going to throw them in jail. And so what ends up happening? They all scatter. And when they scatter, what do they do? They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere they go. The, the, the very efforts of these people to stop the gospel are the very efforts that spread the gospel throughout the area. Everywhere they went, it says, they began to preach the gospel. And they end up, they end up taking this opportunity. Um, they end up taking this opportunity to go to Samaria. And it's really incredible as you, as you read it. It, 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 says, it says, as they were as, as those had been scattered to preach the word wherever they went. That just that, I mean, just think about that as it relates to their devotion to Jesus Christ. How many of you believe 
that if you were in a place of persecution and, and you said, time to get out of here, how many of you think you probably would, 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 would look for a low profile wherever you landed? Right? I mean, why would you go back to what caused the persecution over there you were running from to start doing that where you are now, right? But that wasn't their heart. This, it, it continues to show us the heart, the attitude of that first century church, which was, listen, Jesus' name needs to be declared. We, we just got to talk about who Jesus is because he is the only hope for people. They didn't, they didn't shut their mouths. They preached the word of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. So, so they're going around and, and they're preaching. And one of the places that, that they land is in, in Samaria. And Philip is there preaching God. And God is him by the power of the Holy Spirit in signs and wonders. Did you, did you read? Did you take note of all the things that were taking place as, as, as Philip preached? As they were casting out demons and healing those who were paralyzed, people are coming and they're seeing the power of God. And it says they responded to the message of Philip and people began to give their lives to Jesus Christ. God was using him in this powerful way in, in signs and wonders. And it's at this point that the story of Simon the sorcerer begins. So far the lessons of the church are a commitment to the message and the power that manifests God. This, 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 this power that, that, that changes lives. But what begins then is the challenge to the right response. I want, I want to... I want to draw your guys' attention to this as we talk through this because I want you to think about this. When God moves, let's say as God moves in this, in this way, in this powerful way, when, when God heals, when God, when God touches, when God manifests, him powerfully, manifests himself powerfully, what does your heart do? How do you see it? How do you, how do you identify with it in your own life? Because that's now that we're examining as it relates to Simon. What, how did he respond to what he saw? See, Simon was by no means um, uh, unacquainted with something that seemed supernatural, right? It tells us here that Simon was known as a sorcerer. Uh, and, and in that, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, that wasn't untypical of that, that world. There were many astrologers and soothsayers and magicians, and they had this great influence, and, and, and they made a comfortable living. In fact, as you read verse 11, it, it shows how influential he was. It said that many followed him from, from those who were, who were lowly to those who were high. Many people followed him. And so Simon was in this place in which, in which the hierarchy of the place in which he lived was people looked up to him. People thought he was amazing and people followed him. But then Philip came. Philip came and proclaimed the gospel. And it says this, they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When Philip came, he changed the structure of everything, didn't he? When the Holy Spirit came, they cha he changed the structure of everything, didn't they? 
Simon was the guy who was at the top. He was, he was the top of the heap. Everybody would come to him and say, look at that guy. Look how powerful that guy is. We should follow that guy. We should listen to that guy. And then all of a sudden, they became aware of the truth that transcended even what Simon was doing. Whatever Simon did paled in comparison to the move of the Holy Spirit. And so everything changed. Many people followed Simon, but then they realized what was true. They, Simon even, believed and was baptized. Now, now if, if we stop the story right there, it's an incredible story, right? All this persecution of the church, they're so moved by God that they, they spread out. They go to Samaria, a place where, where as Jews they probably wouldn't go and they wouldn't hang out because of the division. But they believe that the gospel was for everyone. And so they go and they preach the gospel. The power of God moves and, and, and demons are cast out and paralyzed people get up and walk. And, and all of a sudden all these people believe and, and they accept Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ and they're baptized. And that in and of itself is an incredible story, isn't it? But it's not even the thrust of the story we read this morning. Because the, the experience of the Samaritans, the experience of Simon, goes even deeper than that. I want you to keep, I want to keep reading here because there's so much to understand about what happens when the Spirit of God moves. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for, for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now stop there. What does it say? It says that they believed. It says that they were baptized. It says that they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, actually. But then what does it say? They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. This is an example of what I believe is evidence of the second work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Another example is found in Acts chapter 19 when Peter, when Peter goes to Ephesus and he discovers some disciples there and he says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said no, and then, and then Peter lays hands on them, and it says the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Um, and, and for those who think that, that this experience, the experience of believing in Jesus and then receiving the Holy Spirit in this powerful way, is something that is relegated to this time and place, I, I want to read you guys a quote um, from Augustine in the 4th century as he refers back to the text we just read, we still do what the apostles did when they laid hands on the Samaritans and called down the Holy Spirit on them in the laying on of hands. It is expected that converts should speak with new tongues. So what you see here is this work of the Holy Spirit in a very special way. Now, now understand this. I believe it is clear that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life at salvation. In fact, there is no salvation with the leading of the Holy Spirit. There, there is no salvation without the revelation by the Holy Spirit, without the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and there really is no walk. There is no walk as a Christian without the work of the Holy Spirit in your walk. 
But I believe the Bible speaks of an experience, and, and, and I will use the phrase for shorthand, the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that there's this special work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to bring revelation and power for his glory, for the building up, for the edification of the body of Christ. That as we, as we walk in this life with Jesus, as we, as, we, as we expand our walk in Christ, there are times, it may happen at our salvation moment, or it may happen at a subsequent time, in which the Spirit of God moves on people, falls on people, for this particular revelation of the power of God in their lives. And I believe this is a common experience. I believe this is something that we see all throughout the first century church in which this was a common experience. A good way to describe what I'm talking about, I think, is the way Jesus Christ spoke of it to his disciples in John chapter 14. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. In this declaration, he's referring to the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's talking about here this experience of the disciples having the Holy Spirit working in them, but then on the day of Pentecost, they would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says they began to speak in other tongues. They poured out into the streets, and they began to prophesy, and they began to be used of the Holy Spirit in this powerful way. What I see as I look at the first century is the unstoppable church had the common experience and the common understanding that the Holy Spirit would come on them in revelatory ways that brought to life powerfully the reality of the Christian experience for the testimony of Christ and the building up of his church. I see this all throughout that first century church, and I see it all throughout the church's history for the purpose of the church moving forward and changing the world. And what I would ask you this morning is this. Open your hearts to whatever the Holy Spirit has for you. No, no matter where you're coming from doctrinally, no matter how you read this, my encouragement to you is this. If the Holy Spirit wants to do this in your life, are you okay with it? The Holy Spirit's not going to do something that he's not doing, right? The Holy Spirit's not going to, the Holy Spirit doesn't do something he doesn't do. But for so many of us, we live so stubbornly that we don't allow the Holy Spirit to move because we say, it has to be this way. It has to look like that. It has to be the way in which I've created the box of God for my Christian experience. And what I would say to you is, are you afraid of the Holy Spirit? Are you afraid that the Holy Spirit's going to do something that you don't want him to do? Listen, the Holy Spirit's not going to operate outside sound doctrine. So agree with me or disagree with me, the only thing I would encourage you to do is say, Holy Spirit, do whatever you want to do. One of the reasons we don't have a lot of the experiences that we see in the first century church is because we want to control our Christian experience much like I believe Simon wanted to control his Christian experience, not allowing the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And so with that, I would just encourage you guys, allow the Holy Spirit to move in your life because as the Holy Spirit moves, the church moves. So Peter and John came to Samaria and, begins to see the Holy, and they begin to see the Holy Spirit baptize people in power. And, and Simon is, is blown away by it. And, and he wants this. 
And this is where we begin to examine our response to the power of the Holy Spirit, to what the Holy Spirit does. How do we respond to it? What do we, what do we want out of it? What are we looking for? And what Simon does is he offers money for the ability to lay hands on people to be baptized. He says, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now I want to remind you at this point of Simon's place in society prior to Philip coming. The apostles don't respond well to his request. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that you may, he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter rebukes Simon for the thought in his heart. He, he turns him and says, he says, there's something wrong in your heart. Your heart is wrong. And then he tells him that, that there is this bitterness. And, and in this case, the, the, the translation here uh, for, from the Greek means a wickedness in his heart. That his heart is wrong, that, that there's a wickedness there. And then it says that he's captive to his sin. He deals here with the motivation of the heart of Simon. Your heart is captive to sin. Your heart isn't right before God. Your heart is in a wrong place. There isn't a lot of clarity as it relates to Simon's place uh, in relationship to his salvation. There's, there's different people who have different, different opinions on this. Uh, that earlier on in the passage, he said that he believed and he was baptized. Um, and then he responds in this, in, this, in this crazy way. And so there are those who say, well, that he believed, but it really wasn't belief. Or he had a faith, but it really wasn't faith. And that he never really came to this understanding or this place of salvation in Christ. And, and I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure that there's, there's a lot of um, clarity on that. Early church fathers say that Simon ultimately became a heretic and he began to lead people away. And so he may not have had, had full belief. But regardless of the state of his salvation, we clearly have a window into the state of his heart. In other words, what did he want? What did he want? What, 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 was he, what was he desiring? What was he reaching for? What did his heart want? As he asked for the power to lay hands on people and receive the Holy Spirit. He has this, he has this, he has this desire as it relates to his expression of what it means to be a Christian. But it seems his heart his want is wrong. There is, there is a crassness, that there is a deep misunderstanding that he has in the offer of money as the means of the transference of the Holy Spirit. But the ultimate issue is his heart isn't right. That his heart is full of wickedness and it's, and it's captive to sin. My argument is what, what he wants is wrong. He sees the power of God and it doesn't take much imagination to understand his desire for what God has to offer is for himself. What he wants is that power. What he wants is to see that manifested through him. What he wants is the expression of the power and the prestige that would come with it. 
What was he before the apostles came to town? What was he before the apostles came to town? It really is profound, the level to which he was held up. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying this. Now, now hear what they said about him. Saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This is the mindset he's coming from. This is the under, this is this, this is the lifestyle he's coming from. So he wanted the power. If you asked him, what do you, what do you want? The answer would be the power. You see, this, this reveals a heart that sees faith in God as something that is, that is for selfish purposes. And this is a common understanding amongst many who are Christians and many who think they're Christians. We need to ask ourselves, what do we want? As it relates to your Christian experience, what do you want? The Christian who has the right understanding of the gospel responds first with this. I want to know Jesus. The starting cry of the heart of every true believer needs to be, I want to know Jesus. Not I want to know what Jesus can do for me. Or or not, I want to know what blessings Jesus will give to me. But I want to know Jesus. I frame it quite often in the understanding of too many of us seek the hand of Christ instead of the face of Christ. Too many of us seek what, what God will do for me, what Jesus will do for me, instead of seeking him, knowing him, a relationship with him. The, the starting point of every believer, if they're going to head down the path in the right direction, is I want to know Jesus. You see, Simon wanted the gift. He wanted the power. He wanted the manifestation. And not as a byproduct of knowing the gift giver as the apostles did, but simply for its own benefit. I want the hand of Christ. I want what Jesus will give me. I want what Jesus will hand to me. I want how Jesus will heal me. I want how Jesus will make me prosperous. I want how Jesus will make me healthy. I want how Jesus will make me happy. I want what his hand will give me. And I'm I'm not that concerned about knowing him. I'm not that concerned about being face to face with him. You see, knowing Jesus is central to the Christian experience. Knowing Jesus is central to the Christian walk. Knowing Jesus is the Christian existence. That that Jesus is not a means to an end, people. Jesus is the end. Knowing Jesus is the ultimate. I want to know him. I, I, I want to be, be known by him. I want to understand him. I want to draw near to him. I want to know Jesus. Jesus himself describes our place in the fold of Christ in John chapter 10, where he says, I know my own, and my own know me. 
And that's not a flippant definition. It, it, it describes the ultimate identity and the pursuit of Christ's followers. I want to know Jesus. I want to know his voice. I want to know his heart. I want to know his passions. I want to know him. In fact, John reiterates what, what Jesus said in his gospel in, in, in the 10th chapter. He reiterates this in his epistle in 1 John chapter 5. He has given us understanding so that we may, and what does he say? Know him who is true. Why has he given us the understanding? Why are we in this place of salvation? For what reason? So that we may know him. That, 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 that the point of, of revelation of the beauty of God is so that we may walk down this path to know him more deeply. Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years, opens his second book with this greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And then goes on in chapter one to say, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or fruitful in what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This writing of Peter, this there's all of these elements here. There's all of these qualities. There's all of these things. And what do they ultimately all point to? The knowledge of Jesus. Knowing Jesus. And then he closes the book with this. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul expounds on this very idea. In the importance of the knowledge of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in rub in, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is, what, is, what is Paul pointing all to? He says, I, I, everything I had before is meaningless compared to knowing Christ. And in fact, what I'm willing to do is go through sufferings so I just share in the sufferings of, of Christ. For what reason? So I may know Christ. He's saying everything in this life that is attained, every comfort in this life, every, 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 every pleasure of this life, every prestige of this life is nothing in comparison to pursuing the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Every believer's primary goal is to know Jesus Christ. See, salvation is the Holy Spirit revelation of Christ as Lord, as King, as hope, as life. And so we come to the realization that life and hope is only found in submitting to Jesus. And that submission to Jesus is who he is. It is the knowledge of Christ. It is the knowledge of his gospel. 
It is, it is, as Paul says here, understanding suffering so we can understand the suffering of Jesus and know him more deeply. It is, it, it, it is, it is understanding how, how he was a forgiving individual. He's a forgiving God so that we, and we may forgive so that we can understand him more. How he sacrificed, we understand, so we sacrifice so we can have a greater knowledge of him. How he loved, and so we love, so we can have a greater knowledge of who he is. The goal of every believer is to know Jesus. If what you want from your faith is comfort or pleasure or fame or fortune, then you are seeking the hand of Christ and you share in the motivation of Simon. But if your desire is to know him and the power of his resurrection, if it, if it is a means of sharing in his suffering and suffering loss of all things for your faith, if that is okay, then you walk in the footprints of the apostles. For them, it wasn't about their fame. It wasn't about their pleasure. It was about knowing Jesus. What do you want? The answer is to know Jesus. And that means, Lord, whatever path you take me down, whatever experience I have, whatever takes place in my life, as long as it contributes to my knowledge of you, I'm here for it. Because I want that more than anything else. And that leads to the second want that reflects the right heart. And that is illustrated in our story this morning. I want to know Jesus, and I want Jesus to be known. You see, Simon's pride and self-promotion showed as he moves into his new life. In his former life, everyone followed him, and they said of him, this man is the power of God that is called great. And he saw the power displayed by the Holy Spirit as the apostles ministered and saw the opportunity to once again be equated with the power of God. To ultimately use God's power to gain great fame and prestige. And this is the exact opposite of what we saw amongst the disciples. All they wanted was Jesus to be known. They lost prestige. They, they lost position. They lost their places. They were scattered all over the world because all they really wanted was people to know Jesus. They lost it all. And they didn't stop saying it. And they didn't stop preaching. They didn't stop telling people about it because what they wanted is people to know Jesus. At whatever the cost. It wasn't, it wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they got out of it. Too often, we find people who use the fame of Christ to promote themselves. They use the gifts of God to promote themselves. They use the church of God to promote themselves. And as a pastor, I can tell you, this is a trap that is easily fallen into. And a trap that many ministers have fallen into. It, it is so... It is, it is, it is so easy to identify your self-worth and your value with what takes place in a church when you're a pastor. And I can tell you the conversations that we have all the time, and I can tell you what, what people say behind the backs of pastors all the time 
about how big his church is or how small his church is, how good he is at, at what he does and what he's accomplished and what he hasn't accomplished. And so as a pastor, you, you begin to identify with, with the success of your church. And, and it's really easy to identify with your success and what you've done and what you've accomplished. And when people come up to you and, oh, pastor, you're the greatest. Oh, pastor, you did this wonderfully. Oh, pastor, you do that. And you begin to use this platform as the platform for self-promotion. Pastors do it all the time. And, I, and for me, even more deeply is, is you identify your self-worth. You identify your value. You identify your joy and your peace by what your church becomes. That was, for me, the, the biggest thing. Early on in my ministry, man, I, it, it, is, it, is, it is so about the success of my church, my sense of self-worth. And, 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 and everything about that is gross. Everything about that is disgusting. Essentially what's happening is, is people are prostituting bride of Christ for their pleasure. This church doesn't exist for me. It's not my church. And it's not mine to, it's not mine to, to draw my, 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 my value from or my self-worth from or my joy from or my peace from. The only place I should draw that is from Jesus Christ. And if I, if I get depressed because there's only 10 people here and I get happy because there's 10,000, there's something wrong with me in the way in which I view my church because I'm using it for self-promotion and for my own self-pleasure. And it's not simply what takes place in the hearts and minds of even pastors and leaders. Too many people, even lay people, see the church as a means for their own pleasure. For them to have a voice, for, for them to be patted on their back, for them to be seen this as, as I deserve this or I should receive that. It's one of the reasons why people run from churches all the time because the church didn't do good enough for them. Because they weren't treated well enough. Ultimately, you're, you're looking to God's bride to give you joy, to give you pleasure, to give you purpose. Instead of saying, Lord, I am a part of the body of Christ. If I need to suffer for your body, I'll suffer for your body. I want to give to others. I want to care for others because you gave sacrificially for your church. And so I want to also. Paul warns against self-serving leaders in Romans when he says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He reiterates this even deeper in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, As I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And I, I, I love that phrase. You've got to understand that phrase, the depth of that phrase. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He uses the image of the cross specifically there. What is the cross? It is the place of suffering. It is the place of sacrifice. It is the place of greatest humility and self-emptying. They live as enemies of the cross. Why? 
and it says they live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction because their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He's saying they, 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 they are enemies of the cross because there is no willingness to sacrifice. There is no willingness to give of themselves. There is no willingness to lay things down. What they want are the things of this world. That's not just something that pastors do, is it? The only thing we care about is Jesus being seen. Not me, not you. That Christ may be seen in us, that he may be lifted up. It's Jesus being declared. It's Jesus being made known. Because only Jesus is hope and life. And from what I see from, the, from that early, early church is you can't simply stop there. You can't simply just say, what I want is to know Jesus and what I want is Jesus to be known. Because what they, the next step they took is, and what I want to do is make sure people know Jesus. I want to make sure people know Jesus. Many guys, one of the, one of the one of the clearest reflections of our of our selfish view of Christ is that we love coming and receiving Christ, but we don't have to take any 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 joy, any effort, any any intention of going and bringing Jesus to other people. He wants to use you to allow people to know Jesus. Do you want to be used of him so others may know Christ. What, what, what believers want is to know Jesus and they want Jesus to be known and they want to be used so that people will know Jesus. That's what the apostles did and that's why that church was unstoppable and that's why the church moved forward. Selfishness causes us to keep him to ourselves. Selfishness causes us to keep Jesus to ourselves because he works great for me and it'd be good for you, but you know, it's uncomfortable, it's weird, it's odd. How often do you invite people to church? How often do you invite people to know Jesus? How many of you guys know somebody who needs Jesus? How many of you know somebody who, who's, who's, who's wrestling with addictions? How many of you guys know somebody who's, whose marriages are falling apart? How many of you guys know somebody who are in, in desperate situations and they need Jesus? And how often have you taken the opportunity to say, I want them to know Jesus? So I look at all of this. The central theme is what the central theme of every believer should be. Jesus. It's just Jesus. There's nothing else. There's, there's nothing more. It's Jesus. So what do you want? What do you want? As we come to this moment, and I, I ask you that question, as you reflect on your faith, what do you want? Do you want to know Jesus? Is that the depths of your heart's cry? Is that, is, that, is that ultimately what your spirit desires more than anything else? I want to know Jesus. And I want Jesus to be known. 
Father, show him to me. Father, reveal him to me. Spirit, work in me. I open myself up to the work of the Holy Spirit in whatever way he needs to so that I may know Jesus more deeply. Father, remove from my heart the idols that I've laid out before Christ. Father, remove from my mind this understanding I have of Jesus that is selfish and self-serving. I want to know Jesus. Jesus. 